Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your heart is kind and Your desire is for us in a way that we can't comprehend. Father, in a furious way. Lord, may that sink deep. And we need by the power of Your Spirit to understand more clearly the depth of Your love. And Father, may You continue to reveal that in greater and greater measure. Even as we look at the subject today, and Father, may You open our eyes to what we have never seen before. In Jesus' name, Amen. We are uh, looking at the topic of marriage, uh, looking at missing pieces, things that over 25 years of ministry, I've just discovered that there's a lot of missing pieces, things that we have this picture of what marriage should be like as we enter into it. But as time goes on and we're putting this puzzle together, it's like we're missing certain pieces of this jigsaw puzzle. And it's not that they've always been gone, it's just sometimes they get lost along the way. I want to start out reading this morning. Before I do that, though, I want to encourage you that if uh, you're not married but you want to be, I really want to encourage you to, to listen. You may think, ah, you know, this just isn't necessarily for me. I'm single and whatever. Um, but yet, if you want to be, someday you will need some of these missing pieces. And in many of these pieces that I talk about, um, you find, uh, like today, the issue of friendship. A lot of what I have to say about friendship is, in marriage is equally true in friendship in life. So just keep that in mind. In Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon writes in one of his, uh, his moments of reflection upon his own life, and I think he is reflecting upon himself, says, There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Enjoyment of what? You've got to ask the question. Enjoyment of what? Well, in the context here, it's enjoyment of friends. Why would he lack friends? It's because his priorities are all messed up. A thousand different reasons. And he writes, this too is meaningless. A miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for the work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of strands is not quickly, three strands is not quickly broken. It's a great description of friendship. But within the context of this, while Solomon had many wives, which was to his detriment, while he had wives all around him, concubines more than he could number, he was a very lonely man. He lacked not only friends within life, but he lacked friendship even within marriage. As many options as he may have had. As many options as he may have had. 
Friendship, especially in marriage, is both glorious and it's extremely, extremely fragile. We don't think about it as that, but it is. One researcher discovered this over a period of time, and he writes this. In marriage, people, what people seem to want most of all in a mate is a best friend for life. But too many couples, but for too many couples, this desire for lifelong intimacy is more a hope than a reality. It's not that it's an unreasonable expectation to have your mate to be your best friend. Most couples start out with a good taste for it. In other words, they start to experience that. They start to move towards that. It's just that as friends, it's just that friendships, as time goes on, need to need to be nurtured in many couples and in many costly ways, in more ways than couples realize until their friendship is all but gone. It's kind of a sobering statement until that friendship is all but gone. I'm going to take and spend two weeks on this issue because as I've discovered and as as others have told me just this last week, this is a very, very important piece that we need to grasp a hold of and we need to come face to face with in dealing with these missing pieces in our marriage. We don't realize it, but in many subtle ways we sabotage our friendships. One of the ways in which we do that is just through neglect. After the honeymoon, you get busy with life and career and you get focused on other priorities. You go, you start to have kids and you suddenly you begin, stop, you stop talking about mutual dreams and interests and directions to talking more and more about kids' problems and concerns. Anybody ever experienced that? <laughs> All moms of young children. <laughs> Another thing that uh, sabotages these relationships is this, a critical spirit. A critical spirit. Oftentimes, the one who is most critical is the last one to really see it. But a critical spirit, a uh, murmuring, uh, chronic negativity, sort of an eeyore, begins to erode the relationship Criticisms fill the air. Words are reckless. The person, as they're sharing their thoughts with their spouse, all of a sudden the spouse starts to realize and he thinks, I'm never going to be good enough. It just begins to, to grate on you, this murmuring, this negativity, this eorism. At times you begin to feel like, ah, maybe I ought to just throw in the towel and settle into a mediocrity. It takes a huge toll. Unresolved conflicts is another saboteur. Things happen and they're unresolved. Wounds fester. Blame rules the relationship. Unforgiveness builds walls and pride keeps the ball from rolling, from rolling in the wrong direction. Pride just takes over and keeps us. I'm not going to apologize. It's my... My, my spouse's fault. They did this. They did this. And therefore, I have a right to feel the way I feel and to do what I do. And it kills friendship within marriage. 
And over time and habits, these things form. Pretty soon, something develops in your own relationship that Sheldon Vonnegut and C.S. Lewis called a, a creeping separateness. Friendship slowly drains out of the relationship and you begin to disconnect physically, emotionally, spiritually. And it's not long before you're asking the question. Sometimes it can happen after five years. Sometimes it can happen after 25 years. But you ask the question one morning, is this all that there is? Is this all that there is? And you begin to wonder what happened to that sense of closeness? What happened to those mutual pursuits, those mutual dreams? What happened? What happened? What happened? You begin to wonder. You begin to entertain thoughts of just throwing in the towel and calling it quits. And you don't know how to recapture that friendship. And pretty soon, it's one of the glaring missing pieces in the middle of this jigsaw puzzle. Contrast this with God's passion, which says this in Ephesians 5, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and will be united with his wife, fully engaged spiritually, emotionally, physically. And as a result of that coming together and that union... They will become one flesh that's been formed by the very power of Almighty God. That's God's vision. That's His desire. At the center of this oneness is the cultivation, is the heartbeat of a deep friendship that is cultivated by God and to be cultivated by us, to be protected by us. So I want to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself the question, how is your friendship with your spouse? How is your friendship with your spouse? See, the thing is, is God is willing to move all of the resources from heaven to earth if that is our desire to have. If that is what our desire is to have, He's saying, I'm with you but I'm only going to give it to humble, hungry people who, like I said last week, are willing to stop blaming the other one for all of the problems. To stop blaming the other one and cease building those walls that we erect between us. Willing to stop blaming and to humble themselves. To humble themselves. Friendship is both glorious and fragile. This morning, I am going to take some time to answer some questions. So this is this morning is really the foundation of what friend, where we learn about friendship, how we discover friendship. Next week is going to be more practical. But I want to be able to share just what I see as the foundation of friendship. And then I'm going to give you the opportunity to be able to ask questions and we can dialogue. So get your pens and papers out and you can uh, ask whatever question that you want. But here is the foundation of friendship and it begins with the gospel. It begins with the gospel. Because friendship 
as the Bible understands it and friendship as God intended it doesn't make sense apart from the gospel. It doesn't make sense apart from the gospel. So much of what we do doesn't make sense apart from the gospel. Yesterday I was sitting down at Trailside Latte in South Prairie. I'd taken the bike down there just to have some solitude time. (laughs) I bought Kim a gift. I bought her a pickaxe. (laughs) She was digging up some old flower plants and she'd broken two shovels. And she said, whatever happened to our pickaxe? I have no idea what happened to it. Just so you know, the gutters and the structure of the house are my responsibility in the lawn. Her responsibility are the flower beds. She loves it. So she... uh, (laughs) <laughs> she, 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 she was talking about how, man, I wish I had a pickaxe. So she came to the shower yesterday, and I went down and bought her a pickaxe. Put it on the counter. She loved it. But I knew she was going to maybe want me to use it. So I went to South Prairie. <laughs> While I was down there, though, whenever I go down there on the bike, I always have these bikers that come up and just feel free to sit down and start talking to me. And uh, this one guy, he says, so what do you do for a living? I thought, I hate that question. I thought, I'm a psychologist, psychiatrist. I can't fake conversation on that level. I'm a counselor. Well, I can fake that a little bit. Uh, Okay, I says, I'm a pastor. And he says, well, where do you pastor? And I says, told him, and he said, so do you take offerings? Do you take money? I said, I wanted to say, why do you want to give some? (laughs) And I said, no. And he kind of looked shocked. And I said, we receive offerings. We don't take anything. Oh. Well. He had to think about that one a little bit. See, here's my point. It doesn't make sense apart from the gospel. It doesn't make sense apart from the gospel. It doesn't make sense. And we can't understand friendship apart from the Gospel. Because friendship is rooted and it's empowered by the Gospel. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writes to these new believers that he, he planted this church and he says this, and they're doing really well. He says, now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. This brotherly love, this affection, this friendship. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. To love each other. You've been taught by God. How have they been taught by God to love each other? How? How did that happen? Did God download a manual into their brain? No. Friendship is modeled by the Gospel. They saw the Gospel lived out with Paul. They experienced the Gospel. And pretty soon they had inclinations they never had before. But friendship is modeled by the Gospel. For example, in John 13, Jesus is coming down. He's within hours of being arrested. And He goes and they're in the upper room and He says this, having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of His love. These, these students of His, these disciples who He called His friends, He now showed them the full extent of His love. He sets their compass. 
He sets their compass on what this friendship is to look like. What love is to look like. He sets their compass on how to choose to love a fallen person. Because we need to understand that because marriage is nothing more than one broken, fallen, sinful person marrying another broken, fallen, sinful person in a broken, fallen, and sinful world, and we think it should be easy? It's not. I want us to brainstorm in a moment. This is where you get to talk back a little bit. Jesus said, I'm now showing you the fullest extent of my love. He's pulling out all the stops. And it happens from starting chapter in chapter 13, 1, all the way through the end of the Gospel of John. All of that is encompassed in this. But how did Jesus full, how did Jesus show the full extent of his love to those he would call his friends? What did he do? How did he show it? Any thoughts? You'll have to maybe stand up, because otherwise I may not see your hand. Do you ride a motorcycle? <laughs> Cindy, stand up. He washed their feet. He washed their feet. Was that simply because he liked them a whole lot? No, he was modeling for them what he wanted them to then go and do. That's right. Now, keep in mind, you have the perfect Savior who is washing the feet of those who, of whom one would be a traitor. Right? Several would deny him. So it wasn't just that he wasn't doing this because of what he would get back from them. He was demonstrating to them just what it looked like. So when you show friendship to your spouse, yeah, you're going to have conflict. But it's what you choose to do in the midst of that conflict that demonstrates true friendship. True love. How else did he do it? Any thoughts? Going willingly to the cross. Going willingly to the cross. Going willingly to the cross. How else? Even though they would walk away from him, even though they would betray him? Okay? That's the full extent of his love. How else? He gave them fishing tips. <laughs> Fishing gifts? Oh, fishing tips. Okay. Okay. Bingo. One of the key things about friendship, especially in marriage, is you trust enough, not in the perfection of that person or in the maturity of that person all the time, but you trust them in spite of their failures and you allow them deeply into your life. He did not build walls. He says in John 15, I no longer call you servants, I now call you friends because I'm sharing all of this with you. So there's an openness, there's a transparency there's, a trans, there's an openness there. There's a freedom to come in and just allow someone else to be a part of the most your, your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your struggles. I'm so glad they didn't try to fix them. So, anything else? Yes. He showed them how to pray and pray with them. Yes, he did. He showed them how to engage with him with the Father. Okay. 
One more. Yes, he says, I will never leave you alone. He says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Jesus, I want you. No, you don't understand. You get the Holy Spirit, you get me. Claudia. He acknowledged that uh, he knew they all have weaknesses and still uh, did not turn anyone away but still expressed his love. He brought them in even though he said, I know you have weaknesses. Yes. You have weaknesses. You have failings. He acknowledges all of their weaknesses. He doesn't cover it all over and pretend with this, I'm going to believe in a false self in each of you that you are something you're not. Instead, I'm going to choose to invite you in anyhow. I'm going to choose to love you anyhow. I'm not going to try to force you to be something you're not so that then I can love you. That's what the gospel does. That's what it models. See, when Jesus said, I want you to do for me, do for one another what I've done for you, it's not just washing the feet, although that is a part of it, but that's a symbol of a greater reality, a greater heart. That's the gospel. That's part of the impact of what the gospel does. You understand? There's an openness. There's a freedom. There's a an expectation that says, I know you're going to disappoint me. I know that you're going to hurt me. But you know what? I choose, I choose, I choose to love you anyway. And I choose to do loving things for you. I still allow you into my life and I enter into yours. Now, when someone disappoints us, what do we do? We build walls, don't we? We blame I'm building this wall because of what you've done. And we make them pay. I will not change. We will not take this wall down until this happens. Now, we're talking about reasonable, well-intentioned relationships. We're not talking about abusive justification for abusive relationships at all. That's That's a whole other issue that needs to be dealt with at some point but we're talking within the realm of normal, healthy, or pursuit of healthy relationships. I don't know how many times I have people who will say, I will do this once they do that. And I just think, ah. And it's a complicated issue though, isn't it? But we're talking about the disposition of the heart. We're talking about choosing to love in a way that reflects the Gospel. We're talking about choosing to love in a way that reflects how Christ has loved us. We're talking about choosing to love in a way that recognizes that between me and you, between me and Kim, is the presence of Christ. And I love my wife through Christ. I embrace my wife through Christ. He is the lens. He is the one who shapes and determines my choices. But Martin, what happens when I just don't feel like it? What happens? Well, we've got to step back one step and say we experience friendship. We experience the Gospel. We experience friendship with God through the Gospel. What does that mean? There's a whole conversion process that takes place. 
that changes, begins the process of changing the disposition of my heart. How I view you. How I engage you. I no longer engage you based upon the old rules of this culture. I now engage you based upon the based upon the experience, a new experience that I have, a new change that I'm going through. We experience the friendship, what real friendship is, and begins to change us with God through the Gospel. At times, you're overwhelmed by His love and His grace and His actions, and it's out of this well that we choose to give to another person this brotherly love, this, this marital love, this friendship. It's out of this experience that we drink and then I take and because I've been drinking deeply of God's love for me and the fact that He desires me and that begins to change me from the inside out. It's not that I'm just doing loving things. It's that I'm becoming a loving kind of person because I've experienced the Gospel of Christ. That's how you become a loving person. And then out of that you begin to do loving things. It changes me from the inside out. But it's out of this well that we experience and we drink. And it's out of this well that I offer my spouse a loving friendship. It's out of this well I want to give to you that which I have received from the Father. I become a conduit of God's love for you through me. It's what I've always tried to tell my wife. And that is I choose to love you. And then over 32 years of marriage, we have grown. Because she and I have consistently made those choices, we have grown into a deep love. She told me yesterday as we were doing stuff around the house, she says, you keep following me around. I just can't help it. It's in my nature, you know. I just love you, babe. (laughs) Well, would you take and at least put this barrel of these old flowers in the recycling center? I'll do that, babe. I'll do that. I just love being with her. But it's all because of the Gospel and giving friendship to my spouse is then empowered by the Gospel. It's modeled by the Gospel. We experience friendship with God through the Gospel. And because of that, when I choose to love my wife, or she chooses to love me, which sometimes is not easy, believe it or not, it is empowered. Her choice is empowered by the Gospel. It's empowered by that. It says this in 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us love one another and realize that that's a confrontational statement. It confronts us in the core of our beings. It confronts my own backstage issues, my own excuses, my fears, my pride, my selfishness. It confronts my character. He says, love one another, for love comes from, it finds its origin in, It finds the well with which it comes out of. Love comes from God. So when we are struggling to love our spouse with this friendship kind of love, when we struggle with that, realize that it's God is using that situation, those circumstances, to challenge my own backstage issues, my own selfishness, my own fears, my own pride. My own self-love. 
He challenges all of that by saying, will you love Kim? Or Kim, would you love Martin? But Lord, I don't want to. If you only knew what he just did. If you only knew what he said. He's been neglecting me. He's done this. He bought me a pickaxe rather than a diamond. How dumb is he? He just doesn't get it, God. If I had thought about her a diamond, she would have made me take it back. Right, honey? <laughs> so I need a few upgrades in my gift giving, huh? Love comes from God. If I'm struggling, you really got to understand that the struggle comes because of my own stuff. My own backstage garbage that God is confronting within me. He says, I want you, Martin, with humility to repent of your own self-love because you're struggling to be kind to her or to nurture her because you didn't get what you wanted. And when I choose my own backstage stuff to protect that as opposed to choosing to be formed by the Gospel, it becomes a problem between me and God, not me and my spouse. For God says, I've got the origin of love. I've got this well. You're a conduit of this to your spouse. Don't plug it up with your own garbage. Don't plug it up. See, this challenge is rooted. This confrontation comes out of the very nature of my identity with God. It says, For everyone who is born of God or been fathered by God, I love that term more, been fathered by Him, knows God. Like father, like son. Look, Father, your son is pretty messed up. That's okay. We're raising you up. We're maturing you. We're developing you. You understand? So in humility, because of the gospel in humility, we cry out to God and say, God, make me an attentive spouse rather than neglectful. So neglect does not become a saboteur of the very gospel working its way out in my life. God, make me gracious and thankful, not critical or grumbling. How do you know if you're critical and grumbling? Because a critical grumbling person is usually the last person who knows. They feel justified. It's kind of like Debbie Boone and you light up my life. If it feels so right, how can it be wrong? It just feels right. Well, ask your spouse if you're critical and grumbling. God, make me a peacemaker, not a grudge holder. God, make me a warrior that fights for my marriage rather than a quitter who settles for mediocrity. That's what the gospel does within us. It begins to change our orientation. It begins to change our heart. And then it begins to change our marriage. Okay, here's your chance for questions. Thoughts? You want to debate me? That's fine. Just what are your questions or thoughts? Cheryl's got our Vanna White of Elam. Um, 
has a mic, and we do want to hear it, so she will make sure that you speak into it. Otherwise, you'll be dis- she'll hit you with it. Okay? Violet Vanna. All right. Any thoughts or questions? I'll start off with a hard one for you. Uh, what are your thoughts on where the line is between uh, two sinners trying to uh, have a healthy relationship and uh, where an abusive relationship begins? Where is that line? Where, where do you draw that? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, when the one is requesting or requiring um, unhealthy um, acts, unhealthy engagement, it would be when one is consistently, intentionally manipulating the person, and so there needs to be healthy boundaries. Um, I mean, I've got a whole constellation of stuff. I just, I want to I make sure I keep it appropriate. So, um, it's, be, it's when it all becomes one way, um, rather than a mutual engagement. So again, there needs to be a, a, a healthy um, boundary there, a healthy partnership. It's when one uh, is the, refuses to um, hear the pleas, hear the, the desires of the other, and says, it's just all got to be my way. Uh, it's when one chooses to not deal with their backstage issues but the uh, the person still um, requires stuff. It's when things become physically violent, um, and it's the other person's fault. Um, those kinds of things. That answer your question. Anyone else? All right, I'll stand up on this one. So, Martin, what are, let's say, three things you didn't know but wish you would have known going into marriage? Hmm. (laughs) How stupid I was. (laughs) Um, Thank you for that grace. Um, the power that that uh, porn had upon me um, in my young years before we were married and how that shaped my expectations. Um, how messed up I was in the whole backstage area of my life. I was there to be the director of our marriage rather than a partner and participant in it. How ungracious I was. What's that? (laughs) Um, What are the positive things? What are the positive things that I wished I would have known? 
I don't know. Um, there's a lot of things going on in my mind. You know, before I was 50, I used to be able to think a lot more quickly on my feet. <laughs> I had no idea how much work it would be, but how glorious it would be. I had no idea. I had no idea how glorious marriage is. When, I, when we went through our premarital, we were sitting in Denny's with uh, Pastor Zanakis, which was, who was Kim's pastor from Bullhead City, driven to San Diego. We, we had one session, and he was going on and on about how negative marriage was, how hard it was. And I says, can you give me some, something positive here? <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, just, it's wonderful, but it's different. It's different. I had no idea how God would use this woman to shape my life in ways that she doesn't even know how she did it. But she has an incredible redemptive value in my life, my role. But I had to be willing to say, God, I'm sorry for my own sinfulness. I had no idea how God would use this woman to raise my own self-awareness of what was going on in my, my, the backstage of my life. Um, I had no idea how difficult raising children would be, but how glorious it is. Um, ch- raising our children was tough um, because I had no idea of the stuff that I was bringing to the table, um, but how glorious it is when we are humble and we are driven by the gospel. Um, I had no clue what I was getting into, both in terms of what God was going to do through marriage in my life and how God was going to use me in my wife's life and where it would end up. I thought it would be one place of happily ever after living on an island in the Caribbean where, you know, you just sit and eat coconuts and run around, you know, you know. <laughs> but it's just very different than that. And I realize I don't like coconuts. It's just glorious. It is. It's not easy, but it's glorious. Martin, we have a number of young adults in this church who uh, might sense an attraction to a person of the opposite sex. Or Say it isn't so. D- occasionally it happens. <laughs> or, um, you know, develop a friendship with someone. And they're asking God, um, you know, how do I know is this a person that you are bringing into my life or not? So can you give them any um, <laughs> guidance or tips as to how, how do you really discern whether or not... Um, this is a person that I, I, I should be considering as a possible mate for my life. Uh, focus less on whether or not this person is God's will for your life. Focus more on you, are you becoming? What kind of person are you becoming um, through the gospel and your character and in your backstage? You know, Paul speaks in, first, in Colossians 1 uh, about the fruit of the gospel changing us, our characters, bearing fruit in our lives. Is that happening for me? Secondly, when it comes to looking at another person, look beyond the physical. The physical will change. As anyone who, who is over 50 has realized, the physical changes, right? <laughs> it changes. It changes. Um, but look beyond to, is this a person 
that I'm willing to love no matter what? Is this a person who has a heart for Christ? Regardless of what's going on, the struggles that they have, do they come back with a humility towards Christ and towards you that then catapults them into being, having greater and greater fruit in their lives through the Gospel? Uh, do you have the same mission in life? Uh, Kim and I, when we got married, we knew that we were going into ministry. Um, we knew that, and we were united on that. We were united on God's mission for our lives, and that is our marriage was not just about us. Our, and I'm going to speak on this in a number of weeks, but uh, God's mar- our marriage was not about us. It was not just about having kids. Those were the benefits along the way, but our marriage was about us moving forward in the kingdom of God and being, being role, having a role in that together. We didn't know exactly what that was going to be yet. We didn't know exactly what that would be like, but that's what we kept our focus on. Okay? In the midst of all of our stuff, that's what we, that's what we were driven by. Um, is this someone that will be patient with you as you develop? Um, is this someone who will be patient with themselves as they develop and won't blame, won't want you to rescue them, but won't, will want you to partner with them? Those kinds of, those kinds of things. Um, Gary Thomas has an excellent book out for those who are pre-engaged or engaged, and it's called Sacred Search by Gary Thomas. It's excellent. It is excellent. Just as a process for working through that stuff. So, all right, one more question. Ellen, it's good to see you guys. Welcome back from Battleground. Okay, I don't know exactly how to um, say this, but uh, this year we went to a conference and... um, and it was, we were reminded that the gospel is not only for God so loved the world, but it's also all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So um, part of that is repenting from our sins and then realizing that, that God so loved us, that's why he came to save us. And so in um, our friendships being rooted in the gospel um, and empowered by the gospel, can you um, expound, I suppose, on incorporating repentance in our friendship and realizing that God loved us in we're sinful, and he saved us from our yes. sin. So how do we incorporate repentance into our, our friendships and into our marriages? Realize that this, you're going to screw up. And you're going to feel very justified in doing that and not see what you've done. You're going to feel very justified in doing what you've done. I, there's never been a time where I have um, not wronged Kim, that in the heat of the moment, I felt totally justified in doing so. As crazy as that may sound, 
but there is not one time that I know of where I, when I have not wronged when I have wronged Kim, when it was after a short period of time I realized I really blew it, and I have to call her and apologize and say, "Honey, I'm sorry." It could be I've been giving her the silent treatment. It could be words that I spoke. She tripped a switch in my mind. Um, I bought a car without asking her. <laughs> I've offered to sell it many times for her. Um, you know, things like that, you know. Uh, it, it comes about as a, as a result of humility and it says, you know what, in my pride, I want to step back and I want to say I want her to make the, the, the first choice. Ever go to bed when you're mad at your spouse? And you look at it and says, I'm waiting. <laughs> Repentance and humility says, I'm sorry. I, I will own what I've done. And you allow God to work on your spouse for what they've done. And that just takes time. And we're not the one. I'm not the one who can say, God, you need to call Kim to repentance for this, this issue. Um, and I expect it to be done in ten minutes. Now, go. But instead, I just allow God to work on her. And God has always worked on her. And God has always worked on me. So, yes. Okay, Beth, right over there. Hurry, Cheryl, run. I'm having fun, so. What advice would you give someone who has found themselves in an unhealthy relationship and their spouse has no desire to have a relationship with the Lord and is not willing to seek outside help? Um, <laughs> that's a huge issue. That's a big issue. And uh, that's more time than what I can... That, that's going to require more time. But I, I tell you this. Would you send that to me? And I will address that issue in the near future through this series. Okay? That would be great. But I would start by saying, one, you focus on the person that you are to become. And you don't blame your unhappiness upon them. But you take and you bow in humility and say, God, make me the person you want me to be in the midst of this circumstances, in the midst of this relationship. And you own your stuff. That's where it begins. But when you use the term unhealthy, that's a broad, broad term that can encompass many things from my husband, I don't like what my husband is doing, so therefore I'll slap it with unhealthy, to he's, he's slapping me around. Um, so it's a very subjective, ill-defined term. So we can talk about that, but it's a very important deal, especially in, in marriages where we are unequally yoked, as Paul would say. So, in 1 Corinthians 7. Okay. Martin, we have one more, Martin. Okay. See, you guys are just getting warmed up. What is a healthy expression of anger and a healthy argument in a marriage? Oh, you guys are asking great questions. <laughs> um. Okay, would you email that to me? 
Um, healthy expression of anger and a healthy expression, way to argue. Um, great question. That, that's going to take some time. We'll, 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 we'll deal with that when we get to the issue of conflict. Okay? And I may, uh, I may call in some uh, professional resources. Sebastian's over there. <laughs> so, because um, great questions, and they're real. They're real. Because, see, every time I got angry in my, with my kids, with my wife, I, always, I was the first one to always justify it. And I'm, I didn't see it. It's destruction. And it just felt so righteous. Um, but there's, there's, an, there's humility, there's an understanding of what it means to be angry but don't sin. I'll just suffice it to say this. I just need to shut up. Um, but let me just suffice it to say this. Human, unhealthy, sinful anger seeks to destroy the relationship and the person Healthy anger fights for the relationship, for the health of the relationship. Okay? Significant differences within that. Um, so it fights for the relationship rather than seeks to exact revenge, control, manipulation, punishment. I used to use anger for control, get them to do what I want them to do, manipulation, get them to do what I want them to do, punishment, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And it just felt so right. But that's how, I, that's how it was modeled to me. So, but it violates love. It violates friendship. And oftentimes we've got to go back to, well, how did Jesus take and, and exemplify these things? How did he live these things out? Okay? But just realize this, that this whole concept of friendship, it's going to confront us, and it's never easy. It raises a lot of questions, but it also provokes my own self-love um, it exposes my own backstage issues. It confronts my own fallen character. And it challenges me to be willing to say, am I willing to grow through this? Am I willing to be um, godly? Am I willing to be humble? Am I willing to mature through these things? So, okay? You guys like the Q&A time? Okay. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll be doing more of these. So, let's pray. Father, we love you. Um, Father, my heart breaks because as I look around this room, Lord, I know that many of these questions are very close to home. Father, sometimes they're in the same home. And uh, Lord, may you take and just do a work in the power of your gospel to shape us. Lord, it's what we need. But Lord, may we be willing to have the humility to be able to say, Lord, work in me first. Lord, I want to stop looking at my spouse. I want you to work in me. No one else is to blame for what we choose to do, Father. I just acknowledge that. We are, we are the one responsible. So, Father, drive that home to us. Father, may we humble ourselves so that you may exalt us in righteousness and in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.